0: sometimes wonder if your failures might impede God's will? It's a concern worth considering as the story of Esther continues to unfold. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares more about the faithful woman who always seemed to be in the right place at the right time to be used by God. Listen now as David introduces the conclusion of his message, Esther Becomes Queen.
1: Well, looking back over our shoulder, we see how God was setting up this event with all that happened at the dinner and the king's displeasure with his wife and how all of a sudden Esther now is in this place of great influence in the kingdom. We don't know all that's going to happen yet, but as we look forward, we realize something is brewing in this story that will take um, it will just take our breath away when it happens. So don't miss a day. Don't miss one of the lessons as we continue to study the life of Esther here on Turning Point. And friends, you can get the study guide that goes with this uh, series that will give you notes and outlines of all of the sessions. This is a great Bible study, especially if uh, you are studying the Bible with a group of women. Studying the life of Esther could be really a fun thing to do and uh, motivating, and uh, we encourage you to use the study guides in that way. You uh, Maybe you as the facilitator, you get the CDs, and that way you can listen to every lesson before you go to the uh, Bible study. And then have everybody in your Bible study with a study guide, and you can have a really wonderful time uh, discussing the Word of God. I hope you will do that, and uh, it will be a wonderful blessing if you do. Well, we're going to get started with today's lesson, and uh, we'll be back in a few moments with some announcements about things that are happening here at Turning Point. But let's open our Bibles together today to the second chapter of Esther.
2: When Mordecai brought Esther to be entered in the contest, he instructed her in detail not to let it be known that she was a Jewess. Whether this was sinful or not could be debated. Some have said that this was tantamount to her rejection and denial of her religion. Seems quite obvious to me that had she told them who she was, the contest would have been over before it ever started. God knew what he was doing, and he allowed this to happen. So she now is in this place where she is going to be put into the rotation and ultimately taken and auditioned by the king. There's an interesting sidelight in verse 11 about the loving and caring person who had watched over her since she was a tiny girl. Notice what it says in verse 11. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. I visualize the man realizing that he has put this young girl in a place of danger, that he has put her in a place where he no longer is able to care for her needs. and While he has done this, apparently under his understanding of the purpose and will of God, he cannot ever for a day not think of her and wonder how she's doing. Some have even suggested that the fact that he had access to this home, this house where the women were kept, is significant that he may have been involved in the Persian government to some degree. In fact, there's another passage that talks of him as being seated in the gate, which would be a place where a judge might be. So Mordecai was on the inside. He had the opportunity to move freely about the kingdom, and I can see him every day as he just sort of happens to walk by the house of the women and wants to check out Esther and see how she's doing and see if her needs have been met and if she is all right. You see Mordecai Mm -hmm. and Esther gradually being inserted into the story. Esther is introduced into the king's knowledge by becoming a part of the many women who were involved in the house of women. Some have suggested there could have been as many as 400 women in this contest who had been gathered from all the provinces of Persia. Now, in verses 12 through 15, we have the rules of the beauty contest, and it's very interesting what is to happen. Now, When every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications to accomplish to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house." Now, this is an astounding thing because what this tells us is that all of these women who are entered in this beauty contest have one entire year of preparation before the moment of their audience with the king. When it says here that these are months of purification, this is not so much ceremonial as it is actually a matter of hygiene and cleanliness. It is a matter of the beautification practices of the day. They were given 12 months to go to beauty school. Twelve months to learn how to sharpen all of their charms. Twelve months to learn how to make themselves as seductive as possible and as charming as possible so they would have the best possible opportunity to attract the king's attention. Very interesting that six months were spent with oil of myrrh, it says. Myrrh served a double purpose in that it was not only fragrant, it is also credited with having purifying powers. It was an ingredient in the holy anointing oil used in the anointing of priests in Israel, according to Exodus 30, verses 22 to 33. It was among the gifts that were presented by the Magi when they came from the East to worship the Lord Jesus soon after his birth, Matthew two eleven. It was mingled with wine and offered to the Lord when he hung on the cross, when he was suffering, and he received it not, Mark 15, 23. And finally, this very substance was used in the burial, of the body of Jesus. It was mixed with myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, John nineteen thirty nine. The Bible says that in addition to the use of myrrhs in the beautification and purification of the women, there was also sweet odors and other things for the purifying of the women. And we don't know any more about this except what we can learn from the heathen culture. It was simply a part of learning how to present themselves to the king and give themselves the very best possibility of being chosen as his new wife. Knowing something of the sensuality and the lust of King Xerxes, it is possible that some of these virgins would provide themselves with an aphrodisiac to arouse his passions even more. So much was at stake. If the virgin failed to delight the king, she came in unto the king no more, according to the text. And so for one whole year, all of these women prepared themselves to learn all of the tricks of the trade so that they could attract the affection of King Xerxes. Esther is involved in all of this too. She's going through all of this process. Notice what it says In verse 13, Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. And in the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned unto the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubine. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now exactly what happened, as far as we can determine from the text, is this. When Her number was called, whatever it may have been. Perhaps it was a drawing of lots. And she was selected to go and spend her time with the king. Apparently, she spent a night with the king. She would go in the evening and return in the morning. And if the king delighted in her, he might ask for her again. But if he did not delight in her, he would never call her name. And after she had her first opportunity with King Xerxes, if she did not please him, she was no longer a part of the context. It was history for her. And that's what was going on during this period of time. And I'm sure that Esther, if she was indeed a godly woman, as we believe she was at this particular moment, in her heart, she must have been questioning what she would do when the moment came for her to present herself to the king. Well, we read in verse 15, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, And I want you to stop for just a moment and notice this is different from all the other women. When any of the other women went to spend their night with the king, they could ask the keeper of the women for anything that was in the house, and they could take it with them. Any of the sweet perfumes, any of the things that were available to them. And most of these women would determine what they would take that would be most pleasing to the king, that would give them the best possible chance to attract his attention, and they would go with everything in their arms that would attract the king. But the Scripture says when it came time for Esther to go, she didn't take anything except what was mandated. She just went. She went knowing that God was with her, knowing that she did not need to add to what the Lord had already provided. She went in her own strength and in the power of the Lord who went with her. Verse 17 tells us that whatever it was that she took with her and whatever she did and however she conducted herself, that the Scripture says she was taken to the king into his house royal in the tenth month, and the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the only reference to love that we have in all of this book, and it is here only that we find the combination of grace and favor Two words which are much used in other places in the Bible. Here they are used not to describe God's attitude toward his people, but to describe the love of this king for Esther, whom he has just met. The king is overwhelmed, so much so that he decides to throw a great party. Notice verse 18. And the king made a great feast unto all the princes and his servants, even Esther's feast And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Esther has now been moved out of obscurity into the second most powerful position in all of the kingdom. She has really had nothing to do with that herself. It has been God working behind the scenes, orchestrating all of this to make it happen. She is now the queen. The party has been thrown. She has been established. All of the other women have been dismissed. She is now in the place of Vashti in the royal palace. And the Bible says that she continued, even now as the queen, to keep her identity as a Jewess from her own husband. And it's interesting to discover why. Because Mordecai, who had brought her up since she was a little girl, told her, don't tell him yet. And even though she was the queen, she still had allegiance to the one who had been her overseer in her early days. Now, as we stop right there, in the narrative of this story, which I have told very quickly, I think it's important for us because We don't want to lose the impact of this truth. It's important for us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. I don't believe the Word of God ever should be opened without there being practical application to our own hearts. We're not here just to study history, but we're here to study the Word of God so that it can have an impact on our hearts. In order for us to get the impact of it, we have to know the history of it. And so just because this is a story of history that has principles we can observe, let's don't bury it in Persian history. Let's bring the story up to where we are and let's get some principles we can get our arms around. Here they are. Number one, God's will is not isolated to the church or to Christians. One of the overwhelming things in this story is that up until this point, all of the orchestration of the will of God has involved people in the pagan world. He has been moving people around in his orchestrated plan who don't even know him, who don't have any idea of who Jehovah God is. Xerxes would not have known the word. And yet God was at work in his life so that all things would work together to good for those who are called according to the purposes of the Lord. Don't you ever discount how God works in the life of someone just because they don't happen to be a Christian. God's will is not isolated to the church or to Christians. God often uses his will as he implements it in the lives of others. Number two, God's will is not frustrated by the failures of men. You know, that is such an encouragement to me because I've failed the Lord so many times. If God gave up on all of us when we failed him, we'd be in trouble. If his will stopped the moment we failed, then his will would be non-existent for about 98% of us, wouldn't it? Watch carefully what happened. Xerxes divorced his wife. That isn't right. That shouldn't have happened. He carries on a one-night stand with all these women choosing his queen. That isn't right. That isn't godly. And though that is not a part of the directive will of God, it is included as a part of God's will because he even uses, as I've said before, the wrath of men to praise him. Sometimes when things go wrong in our lives and they don't just fall according to script, we just want to throw up our hands and say, well, that's history. It's over. Listen, I've been around long enough now to know that God is a master of taking things that look like they're the broken pieces of a life and putting all those pieces together in a different order and still bringing glory to His name in spite of our failures. The will of God is not frustrated by the failures of men. Thirdly, I've written down that God's will is not negated by difficult circumstances. Esther was brought to the house of women. I really believe she didn't want to go. I don't believe she wanted any part of that. She was brought there. That was difficult. Verse 8 says, It came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard that many maids were gathered together to Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Think about Esther growing up without a mother and father. I don't know what happened to her mother and father. They died apparently Mordecai took her and brought her up. Those difficult circumstances for Esther, I'm sure, those who have grown up in single-parent families can tell you that God can give a mother or a father enough love to almost make up for two, but never quite. Sometimes those difficult circumstances can be painful and hurtful. Sometimes when we see God working in our lives and then we look at all the circumstances of our life which are so difficult, we wonder, God, is there anything you can do with me, anything you can do for me? But let me just remind you from this story that God's will is not negated by the difficult circumstances in your life. He will often see his will worked out in your life, not often because of you, but perhaps even in spite of you. Number four, God's will is not complicated by the devices of man. I love what happened in verse 15. When Esther knew it was her turn, she decided not to take any of the stuff of the house with her. She would just go in her own strength and in the power of her Lord. You don't need to complicate the will of God by assisting him to accomplish his will. How many could say, I've done that. I've been tempted to do that more than once. You think God has got this thing all squared away, but you need to just give him a little nudge and a little help. Maybe just take a few things from the house to help him out to get it done. I've told pastors over the years, don't you ever call a church and seek for a position. Don't you ever send a letter saying, I want a position in this church. I want to tell you why. Most churches these days, when you get there, it's a different church than the one you think you're going to. And after you're there for a while, if you're not absolutely dead certain without any contradiction whatsoever that God called you there, you will have a very difficult time staying there. So whenever you're seeking the will of God, you make sure God is doing it, not you. Don't you help God. He doesn't need any help from you. Don't you take any stuff from the house to go with God and his plan for your life. You just go in his power and let his will be wrought in your life. Because if you're not careful, you'll complicate the will of God for yourself. I thank the Lord every day. That I know for a fact he called me to preach. I know that because I resisted it for so long. He didn't get a volunteer from me. I was drafted. (laughs) He chased after me and inducted me. I didn't come to preach because that's what I always wanted to do. I've already told you that's not what I wanted to do. But God called me, and I'm thankful as I look back on that. I'm not in the ministry today because it's the one thing I always wanted to do with my life. I'm in the ministry because God laid hold of me and said, this is what you need to do. And I'm glad he brought me to this church that way. Uh, when God called me to this church, it was a two-year process, a period of time when I struggled with it at the very core of my life and kept saying no and saying no and until it was so evident that this was the will of God. And then I came, and, and you know that we've had some difficult days here in times past. And if it had not been for the fact that I knew without any shadow of a doubt that God called me here, I would have been so discouraged sometimes I would not be here. I had a fellow come through here the other day who was doing a paper, and he asked me how I beat the John Wooden syndrome. I didn't know what he was talking about. I know who John Wooden is, the great basketball coach at UCLA. But he was writing a paper on John Wooden syndrome, and the John Wooden syndrome is that whoever follows a legend doesn't survive. And when John Wooden retired as the coach at UCLA, there were four or five coaches that came one right after the other until they finally got one to stick. But it took him a long time Of one after another people coming and that was a tremendous responsibility and they say how did you survive the John Wooden syndrome I said I was just too stubborn to quit until I knew God wanted me to quit I wasn't gonna go AWOL on God and I knew God had called me here and I was gonna stay here until God told me that I wasn't supposed to be here when you know the will of God in your life you don't have to complicate it with your own devices when you put your own will and mix it in with God then you're left with a question is this really God's will for my life suppose Esther had gone to the king and she'd loaded up all of this stuff from the house of the women and she'd used all of that stuff on King Xerxes and then she was chosen she wouldn't have known if she was chosen because God wanted her or because she was just the best graduate of the school of beauty I want to tell you something. God's will is not negated by difficult circumstances, and God's will is not complicated by the devices of man. Let me just give you one last thought. God's will is not abrogated by promotions in life. I love verse 20. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Isn't that a precious verse? Who is she now? She's the queen. There is no more powerful woman in all of the land, maybe at that particular time, in all of the world, because Persia ruled the world. She is the replacement for Vashti. She is the number one woman in the world, and she still cares what her earthly father thinks, for he was in her life in place of her father. And she just wanted to do what Mordecai asked her to do. You know, Sometimes when God blesses our lives and we may get promoted, all of a sudden we get in a position and we think we have now arrived at the level where the will of God doesn't matter anymore. You never get to that place, let me tell you that. No matter where you are or what position you may hold or how important it may be or unimportant, the will of God is never abrogated by promotions in life. Here is Esther in the kingdom in the palace, under the control of Xerxes, still caring about Mordecai's will, still doing what this godly man has told her to do. What a perfect picture of being submissive to the will of God, no matter what the circumstances might be. Esther is a book which will not let us ever forget that God's will is at work in our lives, even when we don't know it, even when we try to work against it, even when we are resisting it and denying it, God is at work in our lives if we call ourselves His children. Seek out His will. Be certain that you know what it is. Follow it with all of your heart, and you will find the greatest joy and adventure you can ever have on planet Earth walking in fellowship with the Savior.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow we will begin uh, the um, sort of the opposite part of this story as we begin to understand Haman's conspiracy. In every story, there's somebody who is a rival to the hero or the heroine. Haman certainly fits that category. We'll learn about him tomorrow as we open our Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Esther. You know, promises made are always appreciated, but promises kept are what mean the most. It's one thing to make a promise and quite another to keep it, and every one of us can attest to the validity of that truth. We have all had our own experiences of promises that were made and never kept, but there's someone to whom this does not apply. Did you know that the Bible is replete with promises God has made to you and that he has a perfect record of keeping every promise he makes? That is a wonderful truth, and it's borne out in the resource for the month of March. And you can get a copy of this resource for a gift of any size to Turning Point. The resource is one of the now-becoming-famous codebooks from O.S. Hawkins. This new one is The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim, and the book is yours for a gift of any size to this ministry during the month of March. When you give to us, the money goes toward the purchasing of airtime and production so that we can continue to spread the Word of God around the world. We've just had an incredible year of expansion. We start this year in these early months with our goals set to reach more people than ever before. Thank you for helping. And please ask for this book when you send your gift. We'd love to send it to you. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. To give us an update on how God is using this ministry, write to Turning Point for God of Canada. PO box 18098 Delta BC V4L 2M4 Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca/radio or call 800-946-4300 Ask for your copy of the latest book from OS Hawkins The Promise Code 40 Bible promises every believer should claim It's yours for a gift of any amount You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app to instantly access our content or search in your app store for the keywords, Turning Point Ministries. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for such a time as this, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca.
1: You know the story of Pinocchio, the wooden puppet whose nose grew longer each time he told a lie. Sometimes I think if we humans were afflicted with such a readily visible lie detector, it might be helpful. I don't think many people tell outright lies, but little white lies, half-truths, withholding of truth and exaggerations, I think those occur more often than we will admit. Ephesians 4.15 has the answer, Speak the truth in love. Love requires that we are sensitive to when and how to speak the truth, but speak the truth requires that we never dilute, exaggerate, or withhold what is true. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's reasons for honesty on Route 66.
2: Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.